Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. I'm delighted to have Rob Moffat, partner at Balderton Capital, on the show today. Rob has been a partner at Balderton since 2015. He focuses mainly on fintech and insurtech but he also has experience in games, marketplaces, and SaaS. Some of the companies he's invested in include CarWow, Zego, Clio, Waitstream, PlayPlay, and more recently, Premier Lab and Numeral. Prior to joining Balderton, Rob worked for Google and Bain Consulting. He holds an MBA from NCIAD and a master's in statistics from Cambridge. As you can tell, Rob has a wealth of experience, and in this podcast, we're going to cover a range of topics from his views on the European startup landscape and where he sees opportunities to fintech and trends he's seeing there to organizational design and how to think about it as you move from series A to series B. So welcome, Rob. Good morning. Thank you for the kind introduction. Rob, I thought we could start off with a quick overview of Balderton and what stages you invest in, focus areas, investment size, and anything else you think sets Balderton apart. Balderton, we've been around for 22 years now, investing in European tech startups. It could be anything within tech, could be fintech, consumer, SaaS, healthcare, deep tech, anything with a technology angle to it, which is increasingly any business. We've been doing early stage investing for 22 years across eight funds. We raised our eighth early stage fund last year. It's a $600 million fund, so we can invest check sizes of 1 to 20 million in the first rounds of companies, uh, and we like to invest early. So some of our best investments have been at seed stage. We also love investing at Series A. Last year, we then launched our first early growth fund, which allows us to invest in Series B and C, so 25 to $50 million investments. It's a $680 million fund, um, so some good firepower to invest at later stages as well. We've hopefully been pretty successful at it over the last couple of decades. We were the seed investors in Revolut, led a one $2 million size round in Revolut in uh, 2014, and that's been a, a great journey to be on with Nick and Vlad and the team. We're also Series A investors in the Huck Group, early investors in Contentful, Zego, and many others. I think what, what makes us a, a bit different perhaps from other top tier VCs is the team we bring together. So we have nine partners. Our managing partner, Bernard, founded Business Objects, took that from a little French startup to IPO and then acquisition by SAP for $7 billion, still sits on the board of SAP. Another partner, Saranga, founded a company called Blinks, uh, took that public as CEO. So we have people who've been there and founded companies and built very large businesses, as well as people like me and, and David Thevenon, who were Google before, Rana, who was running uh, Goldman Sachs' growth investing team. So people with interesting mix of operational startup and financial experience. What do you think makes for a good VC? Do you think operational experience is really important? And are there other characteristics that differentiate a good VC? 
finding interesting companies, chasing them down and getting into good deals. And that is a, is a significant part. What founders want the most is money quickly. The money they need from a decent firm and they want to get it in a very smooth way. So that's part. And that honestly is more about attitude, hard work, people who are smart, sort of salesy type culture. Operational experience is not really necessary for that. Then you have someone on your board and we as partners, any company we invest in, we're going on the board. And that's where I think operational experience really matters. When everything's going well, it's it's all very easy. But when things aren't going so well and there are challenges or anticipating what the challenges will be, when you think things are going well, but actually your board member is anticipating an upcoming issue, that's where the operational experience does really matter. And experience in venture as well. I've, I've now been in venture for 12 years. I think that does bring you previous pattern recognition. You've seen where things have ended up in this direction in the past, perhaps helps you avoid the wrong thing happening. Do you see one person having all those three characteristics or together as a firm, you need to have people who have the operational depth, who have been in the venture business, people who are really good at sourcing, networking and finding deals? At Bulletin, we work very closely as a group. So we invest as a group. Yeah, we take a little bit longer to decide because the company has to present to all our partners and we take a vote. So we have to go through that piece and that we all have to be excited by a company, but then you get all of us working with you. So you can get Bernard's experience as, as a founder or Sarangas, which I don't have, or my experience or Rana's experience as an investor. Um, so the combination is good. Individually, I think we all have some pretty significant VC experience now. I think all of us have been in VC for at least five years. I think that does matter. Let's talk about the VC landscape and, and investing landscape in Europe. Where are you as Balderton making big bets going into 2022? Traditionally, we've made a lot of investments in fintech and SaaS, and those are two sectors where we're going to continue to make a number of investments. There's still so much to be done in fintech. There'll be a next wave of companies across all the major subsectors within software. But we have been doing more in, in healthcare over the last couple of years, particularly as healthcare becomes data-driven and becomes software-driven. So companies like Helix, Sophia Genetics, Kaya Health. So we've all continuing to invest further. We made our first investment in sustainability tech last year, and we'll definitely be doing more on that. It's a company called Sweep in France, and that is a really strong trend we see, and it's very important to us as people and as a company, but also we see great business opportunity. And then, yeah, obviously Web3 and crypto is an interesting area. We make a couple of investments at the moment, announced our investment in Ramp uh, a couple of months ago. Yeah, we'll be doing more on that area. I was looking at the Atomico report, and it's interesting you brought up Web3, I, I saw that when you compare Europe and US, US seems to be much more aggressive in investing in Web3 companies versus Europe, which seems to be much more around climate, sustainability. They're leading the way there. What do you think is the reason for this difference? Is it a cultural thing or are we late to adopt new technologies that maybe US is faster to adopt? I think there is a bit more cynicism in general, in Europe than there is in the US. And I think what we saw in Europe was actually the Web3 and and the real sort of wave of crypto. A lot of that was in Europe. Early days of Ethereum was in Europe. Some of the early adopters were in Berlin and and Paris and London. So there was a lot of activity a few years ago in Europe, more so than the US. And we had all the US investors flying over to Europe to try and work out what's going on. Switzerland as well. And then, yeah, the sort of wave of cynicism came through. There was a first sort of Bitcoin crash. There were still some people like like Blue Yard, like one or two others sort of investing actively in Europe. Actually, a lot of the investors sort of backed off from the sector including us, to be frank. Whereas US investors like Andreessen, USV, never backed off and are continuing investing. And then as a result of that, I think we've seen more founders raise money more quickly in the US in crypto areas. And that's where they've been able to catch up. 
keeping with the crypto theme, I know that's not exactly your area, but there's just so much news in this whole emerging NFT market, for example. Is, is this something that's a big focus for Balderton? What do you see as the future for everything tradable, like all these creators creating NFTs and then trading it in marketplaces, et cetera? It's been a fascinating area. Yeah, we're frustrated we haven't made an investment in the sector yet. We would love to. We're doing more work on the sector at the moment. I think we underestimated how quickly platforms like SoRare and Axie Infinity would take off. And I think a lot of that at the moment is based around financial motivations rather than fun. I think long term, there has to be fun here. Until you have people really enjoying the experience of playing these games and, and really enjoying owning these NFTs, then it's just more of a financial game and there's a Ponzi elements to this. I know there isn't as much regulation today to regulate crypto and NFTs, but Europe has always been much more stricter and stronger when it comes to regulations. Do you think that holds back Europe in this area at all? I don't think it has yet. I think it might. I think we've seen the regulators getting a bit more, certainly in the UK, getting more active in terms of how crypto is promoted, cracking down on influencers promoting crypto, for example. There is a lot of regulatory hurdles coming in the crypto landscape and NFTs as well as part of that. There is so much going on behind the scenes here in terms of market activities that would not be tolerated in, in public stock markets. Um, that needs to be pushed out. But the innovation is still here. So Rare is a French company. It's been a, a massive success story. The fantasy football. Yeah, exactly, fantasy football, yeah. There's a lot of early stage companies that we're at talking to creating deeper games. It's our idea of having characters, NFTs that you can then take between games that you own long term. I think it's interesting. With Facebook getting into metaverse, are they feeding off of each other in terms of the interest in this area? There's a little bit of idealism. Instead of what people would love to have is a metaverse where everything they purchase in the metaverse is theirs and something they can port between games. And I can see the attraction of that, right? You don't want to spend hundreds and hundreds of euros in Fortnite. And then when you start playing Fortnite and to lose all of that. But that is pretty aspirational. What would it actually take to do that? There's going to be multiple metaverses. They're all going to be built in completely different ways and increasingly complex code stacks. So the idea that you're going to be able to buy an emote or buy a costume in one of those and then port it across, I think is a pretty aspirational idea. I think the way to do it is the way that Fortnite and Roblox have done it, which is you start by having a great game that people love playing that is an immersive game, and then you can start to build that into a metaverse idea. I'm not sure I buy the Facebook idea that we're going to take the blue app and turn that into a metaverse. Is there anything else, Rob, that I should have asked about that I haven't that you want to talk about? No, it's a fascinating time in gaming. So with two massive acquisitions over the last couple of weeks in the gaming space, some massive funding rounds like with Dream Games raising 250 million. So there's so much to happen in gaming over the next couple of years. So but yeah, I could spend another hour talking about that. <laughs> You don't think it's just a COVID thing? No, no, I think it's just it's ongoing. Right? The amount my 11-year-old son plays games, and yeah, he's not going to stop, and, and I haven't stopped. And it's increasingly both genders as well. Everyone is going to be playing games. And that is a future going to be a, a larger entertainment than TV or music or films. So there's so much more to go in gaming and that evolving into some form of metaverse. Yeah, I can see that because it's a new generation coming and technology has improved massively. Connectivity has improved massively. So it seems like the perfect storm for doing more gaming. And I look forward to hearing more about what Balderton does in this space. When you look at investments last year, there's definitely more and more US VCs now investing in European startups. How do you see this overseas competition? Do you think it complements the VC landscape we have in Europe? I think, I think it's a good thing for European founders. Uh, it's a 
compared to when I started doing this in 2009, where the funding landscape was so limited. A lot of seed and Series A investing is about finding an investor who really strikes a chord with the founder and with the idea. And it really helps as a founder to have lots of different options because maybe if there were only five VCs back then, you might be unlucky and none of them would get it and you can have a great business and but not be able to get that early funding. Whereas now you have dozens of local VCs and you have dozens of American VCs who want to invest in European startups and they want to invest earlier and earlier. I think if you'd asked me last year, two years ago, I would have said they were investing Series C, Series B maybe, but now they're, they're very happy to invest Series A or even Seed. So great as a family, have a lot of options. It pushes off us to up our game. I think there is a, a massive advantage as a founder to having a investor at early stages who is local, who you can spend time with in person, who's in your time zone, who's really engaged with you. Oh, as a founder raising Seed or Series A, I'd want an investor who's with me and on the journey. And that gives us a real advantage, but we need to not rely on that. We need to keep upping our game in terms of the support we give, the quality of our portfolio community, so the platform team we have helping on talent and marketing and finance and everything else, our, our brand, our team, we just need to keep pushing ourselves as a firm to make sure we are as good as the best American firms on those areas and also local and really focused on European founders. I hope that that is the case and that local element still continues to count for a lot, especially in early stages and the operational experience that you bring obviously is very relevant to making that early stage founders successful. Exactly. Let's talk about fintech and opportunities you see in fintech. Some people say that the neobank boom, when it comes to Monzo and Revolut and all of them, were really fueled by low interest rates. And I was curious to hear what you think about the neobanks and where they're going and what do you think it's going to take for them to really break out and become leaders? Obviously, we're invested in Revolut, so I'm, I'm <laughs> got to declare an interest here. I don't think it was driven by low interest. I think it was driven by people's dissatisfaction with their banking experience. You look back before the neo banks and the mobile banking experience, online banking experience of most of the banks was awful. So poor online experience, poor product proposition, poor service. And that's what led people to have huge frustration. And that's why I think well, the market was really ready for Revolut and Monzo. And that's why they took off so quickly. And then 26 as well in Germany. If interest rates were at 10% and you can't pay interest because you're starting as an e-money institution, that might have been a bit harder, but I don't think it makes a huge difference. Uh, now, obviously, everyone is a bank, so they can pay interest if they choose to. But what about the big banks getting into this and creating spinoffs? I know some of the big banks in US as well as here are really going hard on the digital. Do you think they are a threat to the neobanks at all? They're catching up, right? Because of the success of Monzo and Revolut, we've seen that, for example, the mobile apps of the banks in the UK, they've just thrown a lot of money at it. While behind the scenes, it's still like creaking 1960s infrastructure. They put a sort of nice front end on that and filled in some gaps with customer service and robotic process automation. But they're always playing catch up. And you look at the Revolut app today and everything you can do on Revolut. So the control you have over all your finances, your multi-currency wallets, now being able to buy commodities, to buy crypto, buy investments, shares, kids' accounts. Um, the, the speed that Revolut's adding functionality, there's no way that a bank can keep up with that. So I think Revolut will always be significantly ahead. And importantly for Revolut, and what makes it a $33 billion company, I think, is, is the international scope. It is a truly international business, which no bank has ever been able to really pull off. So Europe, US, Asia for now, but then, yeah, the rest of the world after that. I saw one of your posts on 
different opportunities in fintech. It was written a, a few years back. You have companies like Plaid that give you the plumbing mm. that a lot of other banks are building services on because of that. And then you have your Clio's, et cetera, which are much more in the front end. Could you talk about where you see opportunities in fintech today for startups? Firstly, yeah, the concept of open banking open payments, open finance, I think is a really interesting concept. So the idea that in the past, intermediaries, people like Visa and MasterCard, the credit card networks, uh, and all transactions would go through them. Now we have the ability to do payments directly from the bank to the merchants. And we don't need to do that through a, a credit card network. At the same time, we were called to get, yeah, you can verify someone's identity immediately with their bank. Uh, you can get all their banking transaction data and to be able to give them a loan based on much more accurate data. You can help them do budgeting. So it allows innovation around that user experience layer based on the banking information directly. So I think that's a really interesting development in some way Europe is leading the way. So yeah, we invested in, in Clio, who are innovating on the front end. They're not a bank, they don't have any licenses, but they partner with Played, and that allows them to get the banking information of their customers in the US, also to trigger payments, and now to think to improve the financial life of their customers. So they focus on Gen Z, how do you make Gen Z get control of their money? So they get control of their budgets, make sure they save more than they spend, and that works really well. And then they can really focus on being that great AI conversation interface rather than focusing on ledgers and, and accounting. We've also looked at these sort of plumbing type players. Obviously, lots of European players in here like TrueLayer and Tink and Yapoli. We haven't invested in any of those, but we've, we've looked pretty closely at that area. And then the open payments space. So we're investing in GoCardless, who started off in direct debit payments, but also pushing into open payments. We're invested in Primer, which is around automating payment operations. So allowing people to make any type of payments to plug into Primer once and then be able to bring in any payment types that allows you to very easily bring in open payments or buy now, pay later, or whatever new payments type you want to bring in. So that's a really exciting development as well. I think I'm going to now segue from the opportunities and the big picture into what founders care about. There's always this question, is it more important to a VC about the team or the idea? Which one carries more weight? You seem to be much more about the team first and then the idea. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, that, that's definitely my thesis is, is the team matters a lot more than the idea. The idea can flex over time and great team will work out if the idea needs to flex and flex it. Whereas if the team is not great, yes, in theory, you can hire. And there are examples of successful tech companies that have changed their team pretty early on. and That's worked out well, but it's a very risky business. Hiring is so hard at the best of times and trying to hire in a new CEO for an early stage company. I think it's a really tough task. If you're looking at the team as your primary criteria, do you then end up investing more in people who are serial entrepreneurs who've done it before versus people who are first-time entrepreneurs? I actually have a, a bias here. I love first-time entrepreneurs because I think that's when you have the, the highest energy, the highest sort of sense of confidence. You don't know what could go wrong and so therefore you don't care. And that's really important. I think having that self-confidence, almost verging on arrogance is really important as a founder because there is so much doubt being thrown your way. There's so many people who don't believe it will succeed. So being able to punch through that is really important as a founder. I think first-time founders can do that very well. I think second-time founders can also do that very well. We invested a bunch of second-time founders. The challenge is that the uh, right now, the valuation is going to be five times higher to invest in the second-time founder who's had success in their first company. And is it five times more likely to succeed? I'm not sure that maths works. 
first time founders, though, I mean, we had to be very selective. I mean, we invest in probably 1% of the companies we ever meet. And we have a lot of criteria we look for in founders. We actually have, yeah, a list of intellect. Is it hiring ability? Is it vision? Is it integrity and how they think about the company? How do you judge someone for something like integrity? You're right. It's a tricky one. It's something we do from references. So we obviously reference the founders we talk to and then also through the conversations we have with them. Some founders put a positive edge on their numbers, which is fine. Some founders push up too far. Turning your numbers and trying to make out that today's numbers, actually their, their forecast for next year, are they pushing it too far in terms of optimism? You, you touched upon valuation just now, saying second-time founders have a higher valuation, but in general, valuations have skyrocketed. At the end of the day, you want them to be successful. So you want that the subsequent rounds, they've created enough value to get the future rounds successfully raised. So how do you get the companies at the right valuation? Because you, you want to win and, and be in on the deals which count where the startups are really good. But at the same time, you want to make sure that the valuation is not something that sets up the startup for failure. I think at the early stage, we're investing one to $20 million. Even at the top end of that range, it's not too much. It's uh, sensible in how they manage that money. You're not encouraging to go crazy and hire far too many people. You can build a team of... 30, 40, 50 people, which is probably the right size to go after a new opportunity and have enough resources to invest in a great tech and engineering team and deal with salary inflation, but not going crazy. I think the challenge then is if people coming in and giving you $100 million a year later, that's the real danger because you're still working things out. You're still in the iteration phase, but then the temptation is to hire hundreds of people um, and the company may not be ready for it. And that does worry me. There's a quote out there by a much more illustrious VC than me that more companies die of indigestion than die of starvation. I think that was true years ago, and it's definitely true now. Um, and in Europe, that will be a bit of a new thing because there wasn't a lot of funding around for many years. And so we've not seen a lot of this in Europe, but I think we're going to see more over the coming years. From the investor side and from our LPs side, our investor side, the question is, are the returns going to still work if valuations are going up? I think the good news on that is the outcomes are getting much bigger. We're seeing these multi-decacorn businesses emerging, sort of a Revolut or an Agen or a Klarna checkout. There are huge sort of European companies being built. And if you believe that a company can become a $10 billion plus company, then there's no such thing as too expensive at Series A. If the company is really that special, then you should be coming in at any price. Maybe some of that cynicism that Europe has will hopefully help to taper some of this exuberance from all the funding that's coming up. As you said, there's a lot of American investors coming in. Uh, we want to make sure we're seeing the companies first. Then we form our own view on whether it really is special enough. If so, then we pay up. But if not, they will almost certainly get funded elsewhere. But that's the weird thing right now. The mindset is that everyone's getting funded. And so it always pushes you to question your own judgment. Do you think there's a correction on the way anytime soon? Public market correction is happening right now. I right? look at Peloton's share price yesterday and Netflix as well, I think got pummeled yesterday. And we're seeing profitable tech companies getting absolutely hammered in the public markets right now, even some profitable tech companies. The public market correction is here. The private market correction is not yet here, but normally it follows public market. I want to get into the organizational design part of our podcast, but I have one other question, which is something that you mentioned in today's podcast, but you've also talked about before, which is it's very easy for an investor to have too much pattern recognition. How do you break out of that habit? How do you make sure that you can identify the next Airbnb or Uber in Europe because you are able to see outside of your normal patterns. 
it's a mindset piece. I think you need to always be curious and being able to reinvent your mental models. One of my partners, Daniel Waterhouse, who's been a venture now for over 15 years. So he's fantastic at this. So obviously he's seen a lot over the years, but he's always good at just saying, oh, that's fine. That was what happened in the past. This is now. Yes, people have failed doing this in the past, but there's no compelling argument why that has to be the case now. Let me look at this with fresh eyes. So that ability to reinvent your mental models, I think is, is really important. Okay. Let's talk about organizational design. And the way I was thinking we could tackle it is by looking at it first from a series A perspective and then going to a series B perspective. What is the main objective for a founder when it comes to organizational design? The company is your team and your team is a function of who you hire, but then having them working together in the most efficient possible way. And so I think, yeah, steering day stage is about who you hire, right? That's the biggest decision to make. Uh, growing to a team of, say, 50 people, the precise organization structure around that doesn't matter too much. If you hire great people, they work, will work together in reasonably efficient ways. But it's about who you hire and making sure you're hiring the people you need at that stage. And so it's really a question of resource allocation and hiring the right people. I think what mistakes we see, one is hiring too many salespeople too fast for a product that's not ready. The flip side is companies that are entirely product and tech and just a CEO trying to sell and that push out too far and too late to start hiring some salespeople. So again, the right balance between the two of those. And similarly, having the right marketing person early on, someone who is helping you work out your proposition, who is scrappy, who's testing things out, uh, rather than someone who wants to go in with a corporate mindset to your marketing. And often there are roles that people don't hire quickly enough. So hiring a finance manager is an important early hire. Hiring in-house talent, obviously focus on recruiting, but also culture and HR is a really important hire. If you're a software business, hiring a implementation head or a delivery head, particularly doing enterprise sales, is a really important early hire. I think that's something I think we work on board members is saying, can I, right now, all you want to hire is engineers, but actually we should be hiring these four other people sooner rather than later. Security is another one. Cybersecurity is a really important early hire for companies these days. So in Series A, it's all about hiring the right people and having the right balance between go-to-market and the product team or the technical team, making sure that there's a balance of both. And you've talked about some of the biggest mistakes. What about when you come to Series B? What is the main objective of organizational design? Yeah, so in Series B, Series C onwards, the company has revenues, has a sales model starting to work, probably has a few salespeople. Then it's a question of organization. So let's take this as a commercial side first. Hopefully the companies at this point time to go international and time to look at new markets. So the question is then how to organize around that. And there are various degrees of complexity. So we have different markets. We'll have different sizes within those markets. We'll have different client industries within those markets. And we may have multiple products we're selling. Four axes of complexity there. And obviously, you're still a relatively small sales team. You're not going to organize around all of those. So how do you set that up? And I've written a few blog posts. I mean, Index have also written a long series around the international side of that. And what are the different models for international growth? If you're dealing with SMEs or consumers, you can definitely have an international sales approach. You can have your entire team based in your home office in Berlin or wherever, or based remotely. And you can sell everyone from there. And then you can start to structure the sales team by sectors or by product types, use cases, which is great. If you can make that work, fantastic. If you're selling to enterprises or something that requires more implementation, then you probably need to be building sales teams in the different countries. And that probably becomes your primary axis. You need to think country first. If you start to think country first on sales, then where else do you think country first? So do you also need marketing, obviously, to go uh, into the countries? And often that does work best, pragmatically, as sales and marketing need to be very close. And having a US sales team, but with marketing support from London, 
is generally not, not a good setup. Then your clients start saying, oh, well, hang on, I support. So support needs to be local. Then they might ask for engineering resource on the ground. And then quickly you end up in a decision on do you want to start doing distributed engineering? Uh, so that's an area where we see some of our companies, particularly those sort of doing enterprise sales, starting to build local engineering resource sooner rather than later. So Aircall is a great example. Aircall is a cloud telephony business, French company originally. But early on, the CEO moved to the US. Their focus was really on building a great business in the US. And they also built out their product and engineering team in the US because that's what their clients wanted. And they felt for the culture of the company it was much more healthy to have US offices that were full function rather than just being a sales office. Are there any metrics that can help founders determine what's the optimum mix? If you're thinking about expansion and going to different countries, what should they be looking at to determine how to do the organizational design? I think it's more about understanding what are the defining factors for how you make sales? What, what do the clients really care about? Do they want FaceTime? Do they want you to be in their offices? Or are they quite happy to buy this remotely? Are they happy to self-serve even? Do they want to have an open source version of this to play with? Do they want to see the API docs before they start thinking about decision-making? What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen in Series B when it comes to organizational design and what founders have done? I think one is under-investing in new markets and particularly under-investing in the US, particularly in software. A lot of European companies, they want to build something really big. They want to build it, have a significant US business. To do that requires a huge amount of focus from the founders. As you say, you started in France, marked the US, you've got to really go all in on the US. And what we've seen in the past is under-investment in that. So hiring mid-level person and a small team around them, and that's never going to touch the surface in the US. It's such a large market. The danger of then overcomplicating your organization I think as you grow Series B, Series C of 100 plus people in the company, complexity creeps in and you start increasing the product as well. That overcomplexity can start to really slow things down. A bunch of different teams working across a bunch of different things. They're all trying to communicate with each other. But it ends up in a lot of meetings, a lot of time spent updating other people in the org and still not enough communication. And people are not clear enough on what the real priorities are. And then that really hurts productivity. And so it's a real productivity slowdown between series B and C that is a, is a really classic trap for companies to avoid. Where do founders go to understand a bit more about organizational design and how they should do it to maximize productivity and growth? I think more experienced founders is the ideal way. That's what I think most like to hear. But if you're an experienced founder, you've built one company, you tried a few different things, you saw what worked best for you. It, it may not translate. So you have limited ability to do pattern recognition across other companies. So I think VCs have a good overview of this. I think there's a lot of VCs who don't engage on it. And also, if I was a founder, would I listen to my VC on it? Who's never actually run a company? I'm not sure I would. So as a challenge of who has seen enough of this to have actually have the knowledge, but to also have credibility with the founder. There are obviously specialist boutique consultancies who would love to help on this, but a lot of them are, are not going to be worthwhile. They're all expensive yeah. and they may not be listened to. My previous jobs, I was originally at Bain Consulting and spent five years telling large companies how to organize. And then I was at Google and the internal strategy at Google in EMEA and spent a lot of time on that, on org design for Europe. So I saw a lot of these sort of pain points in large companies, particularly around Europe at the time was, was very much a sales and marketing operation for Google. There were separate engineering offices, sometimes like in the same cities, but the two would never talk to each other. And I saw plenty of frictions around that. But that was in a large company. It doesn't mean it translates well into startups. I was talking to a few startups and they said that because of COVID, the whole go-to-market when it comes to expansion, people are thinking about it differently. 
you don't have to go to the U.S. as quickly as you used to before. There are more things that you can do remotely, and it's much more acceptable. I know you've thought a lot about international expansion. You have helped, obviously, a lot of companies. Have you seen any shift in the way people are expanding from their home office now versus before? That's definitely true. The last two years, it's been much more possible to sell remotely, and clients are more open to that. That's been the only option sometimes, and. I think, as in most things COVID-related, there will, will be a bit of a reversal back to what it was like two years ago. But I think that's in some cases here to stay. And people realize it's a more efficient way to procure is to have a number of remote meetings rather than letting everyone spend a day with you in person. What is your advice generally? Is it to say home office to the US from Europe? Or do you say within Europe, go to other places like the bigger countries and then US. At Balderton, if, if you're a software company, a SaaS business, we often push a company to go to the US first. Start in a, a large European market or even small European market and then, then go to the US. If you are consumer or health or sustainability, that may not be the right advice. I work with Carwell, which is a consumer marketplace. Buying cars is, is a massive market guard in Europe and so we've expanded to Germany and Spain and that's made more sense here. Or if you're a games business like Dream Games, you're global from day one. You're doing mobile games through the App Store and the Play Store. So it's a global business from day one. US is the most important market, but all of the European markets are important. Japan's important. That's America's important so it's a, it's a global business from very early days so it's more on the type of business and it's more b2b and SaaS that us becomes a much more important factor yeah absolutely we were increasingly seeing companies aren't going to asia sooner rather than later so primer that's one that comes in the work with they uh, went to us and asia at the same time at yeah series a stage premier lab based between paris and hong kong to start with so it's always had an asian team as they built up the us sales team as well I had also a question from one of our listeners, so I'm going to ask that, and it has to do on SaaS metrics. We know all the rule of thumb in terms of 1 million annual recurring, strong gross margins, less than 12 months payback acquisition cost. What are ARR multiples or key SaaS metrics for Series A and B companies that Balderton has invested in since the summer of 2021? I can't reveal individual companies' numbers, right? Because that's all confidential. I would say oh, there's a mix. I think some SaaS businesses we're investing in, they're very early, that are before the stages of having really robust SaaS metrics. So, have a few clients, they have great product market fit with those clients. So, the clients are delighted with the product. We think they're a great founding team. They're an interesting space. But yeah, the SaaS metrics are still on the early side. So, we've made a number of those kind of investments over the last couple of years. But we've also invested in a company like PlayPlay, Play, which is Series A business. And there, yeah, the SaaS metrics were perfect. They ticked every box, everything, all the numbers you described were in, were in fantastic shape. And as you said, valuations going up, multiples are going up as well. So, the, the multiples are getting higher. And there are companies out there getting valued at 100 times ARR. So, that, that's definitely happening. And how are your top quartile of companies doing over the last 12 months? Are they where they should be and anything that you can talk about that? They're doing very well. So I think it's, it's, it's been a overall a great time for the tech sector. So our best companies in fintech and SaaS are seeing really strong growth at the market, but also they're growing strongly within that and gaining share. So I'd say consistently, we had a few companies which have been affected more than others by COVID, but obviously they've had some trickier times, but the vast majority of the companies have had a great couple of years in terms of being ahead of their plans and ahead of where they wanted to be. So that feels very good. If you look at growth, for example, year-on-year growth or month-on-month growth in terms of the one to 10 million 
the early stage and where they should be, given COVID and the change in investment that you might have done in 2021. For example, Bessemer reported on what they should be in the Series A stage and Series B stage. Are they tracking against those type of numbers? Yeah, they are. What we're seeing now is a bit of yeah lockdown reversal. Someone like a Peloton or a Zoom, companies are seeing a bit of that, that they had overinflated numbers last year. Now they're not quite so good. And so there's a little bit of managing that year on year comparison. And how do you help a new investor understand what the underlying growth is when it's been a little bit all over the place over the last couple of years? So that's definitely a, a challenge for some companies and trying to get investors to think about the long term trend here, like 2019 to 2022 growth, rather than worrying too much on year on year when it's a weird comparison. We're almost coming to the end of the podcast, Rob, and I have some other questions that don't have to do with investments and bulletin. So to start off with, if you could start a movement to change something or further a cost, what would it be and why? Something that I geek out about is um, I really worry about space debris. When there was an incident last night about space debris that Russia, US, China are testing satellite destruction systems, which create a huge amount of rubbish in space. And I, I see a real issue. That is a exponential process. Once you blow up a few things, then there's so much debris around, it's causing more collisions. And we end up wiping out the satellites, which would be a massive issue for us as a species. So that's something that worries me. And I'd like there to be more public kind of drive behind that. Are there startups doing anything in that area? Not that I'm aware of, No. I haven't looked much at satellite tech, to be honest. Interesting. What's your favorite book? It's a book called The Mandibles, which is around what happens in an area where, yeah, the dollar gets abandoned as a reserve currency, leading to hyperinflation in the US, and how quickly the US disintegrates as a result. There's a good lesson in there for all of us. What's your favorite European city and why? I love Berlin. Obviously, I live in London. I've lived in London most of my life, but um, I love spending time in Berlin. I just like the energy there. I love the people, the setup, the food. But yeah, Berlin is a lot of fun. What about a productivity tip or tool or hack, something that helps you be productive? Turning off notifications. I find it hilarious. The number of founder meetings I have where their Slack keeps going off. It's like, how on earth can you focus if you have your Slack going off constantly? And last one, what's a favorite quote? Something that you either say or someone else could have said it, but you really like and you repeat. Struggle improves. I try to remember the Latin for it, but there's a Latin phrase, struggle improves, and uh, how you build yourself up through hard times. Okay. I'll look up the Latin version of it and put it in. Fantastic. Um, so thank you so much, Rob, for being on my podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation and wish you and Balderton the best. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.